What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets podcast. My guest today is Alan Hamill both husband and business partner of Suzanne Summers, a television presenter, an all-around marketing maven. Alan, good to have you here. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. I love your letter. Thank you. So how'd you meet Suzanne? 50 years ago. Okay. Okay. Actually, 52 years ago, I moved to L.A. from Canada. And in Canada, we had no agents, no managers. There was none of that. You'd get a call from the network, and they'd say, oh, we're doing a show. Do you want to come in and talk to us? And we'd go in and talk to them, and they'd give us a job. So when I came here, I didn't know about managers and agents. So I called ABC, and I said, who's the head guy? They said, uh, Elton Rule. I said, put me through. So he takes my call. I said, hi, I'm Alan Hamill. I did a lot of TV in Canada. And I did a late-night satirical show for five years, out of control. I said, there's nothing like that in the States. There's no, uh, uh, there's nothing, there's no, that, with, that was the week that was. There's no laughing. There's no Saturday Night Live. There's none of that. Uh, I'd like to show you a three-and-a-half-minute clip. He said, great. He said, can you be here tomorrow afternoon? Yes. You're calling him from Toronto? No, no, from L.A. Okay. I'm in L.A., Okay. okay, and I'm thinking, now what? Okay, okay. So I don't have sure. a job. Okay, okay. I've got some money, but I have no job. Right. So the following day, I go up there, and he's got his two programming people there. And uh, he said, "Okay." He said, "Where's the clip?" So I hand it to him, and he hands it to some an assistant, and they put it up, and they play it back, and the clip is me on my late night show in Canada called Nightcap interviewing a topless dancer in front of a live audience who's topless. Okay. And I'm interviewing her like man on the street. Okay, I'm not looking at her chest, no lascivious remarks, just boring interviewer questions. So when it's all over, they all looked at each other around the room like, what the hell did we just see? Because the three biggest shows in those days were 
my three sons, Beverly Hillbillies and Green Acres, okay? There was nothing else on. It was all pablum. So they said, you know what? Let's do something together. So we negotiated a deal for me to do a 90-minute comedy special, and they housed me around the corner in the Hollywood Palace. I had offices in the Hollywood Palace. Okay. Was Jerry Lewis doing his show there yet? No. Okay. Not that I was aware of anyway. Right. Okay. And I'm thinking, I'm, I'm at Hollywood and Vine. I, right, literally. I can't believe it, okay? And every day at lunchtime, I'd stand at the corner of Hollywood and Vine and think, I'm at Hollywood and Vine, and my offices are in the Hollywood Palace, okay? Anyway, we do the show, and uh, nobody knew who I was, so ABC said, I was producing it and also starring in it. ABC said, uh, nobody knows who you are, so you need a big-time guest. So I called Robert Wagner, who had this huge TV series, and I can't remember what it was called. Right. How did you know Robert Wagner? I didn't know Robert Wagner. Okay. Okay. But I was cold calling everybody. (laughs) They were taking my call. Okay. Right, right. So I said, uh, here's what I want you to do. He laughed. I said, and here's the money. He said, forget the money. He said, I live in Palm Springs. Just get me the world's greatest golf cart. I said, done. So we do the show, and we're 10 minutes into the show, and I said to the audience, I said, you know, every big-time special needs a big-time guest. We have ours. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Robert Wagner. And you know the way he looked. I mean, handsome, okay, with the cufflinks and the perfect shirt and hair, everything, perfect, right? He walked out, a huge applause and whistling from the women. He goes to center stage. He takes a deep bow goes like that, thanking the audience, then walks down three steps into the audience, up the aisle, and out the front door of the theater. <laughs> and I said, okay, now that we've met our big star, we can carry on with the rest of the... So the whole show is like that, okay? We took on everybody. It was a satirical show. But like today, it would be no big deal. Right, but, but back in those days, people were screaming, and we took on everybody. We took on the Catholics, the Protestants, the Jews, the Poles, the Lithuanians. We took on everybody. And I got death threats. My favorite death threat came from a guy in Libertyville, Illinois. And I said, the name of where you live is sort of the antithesis of this letter you've written to me. Uh, you want to do me in, okay? I, because I, don't, I, I, I assumed I had the liberty of free speech in this country, okay? So he wrote me back, and there were only two words in his letter, and the second word was you. I got that. Okay, right. So where were we? Okay, so you had a one in that 90-minute special. Yeah. Okay, so that special aired. Aired. Okay, and then what happened? Did it get okay. the results? People freaked. It was the second highest rated special all year next to Tom Jones. Okay, what's the, we're in what year again? 1968. Okay. Okay. And the uh, it's on ABC. On ABC. It aired in prime time. When did it air? Prime time. Okay. Yeah. So uh, the show aired. Uh, the switchboards for ABC lit up across the country. People were furious because they'd never seen anything. Well, I like have that. to ask, in light of, you know, they always talk about censorship. Yeah. You had this crazy show. Yeah. They let you wear it? They didn't say, hey, this is a little too edgy? Okay. They said to me when the script was written, okay, they said, you're never going to get this past, what was her name? Grace Johnson. 
I said, who's Grace Johnson? She's in charge of standards and practices. We didn't have that in Canada. I said, what, what are standards and practices? She decides what is not going to make air. So I called her. I said, would you have lunch with me? And I took her to a little place on Vine Street, a little French place. I can't remember the name of it. Right. I ordered the best bottle of wine, and we sat there with the script all afternoon, eating and drinking wine. And every time she turned a page, she would go, okay. My mother used to do that. <laughs> and I thought, I'm dead. I'm dead meat. Okay, we get to the final page, and we've knocked off the entire bottle of wine, and we're getting along, and she closes the script, and she said, let's do this. <laughs> okay. Really? Yeah. Okay. So we did it. and So now it airs, and you're getting negative feedback. You're also getting good, po a good feedback? Getting good feedback, right. Good feedback from people. Actually, you know, a lot of Brits wrote, to, because... British comedy, The Goon Show with Peter right. Sellers and Spike Mel I mean, that's been, I was raised with that, okay, in Canada as a Commonwealth country. So I was used to satire. I love satire. But this country had never experienced satire. So they were in shock. Okay, they turned on ABC to see, I don't know what show we replaced, right. okay, but we replaced some show, and it was obviously nothing like this. So we got great ratings, and the Miami ABC guy called me, and he said, I own the affiliate station in Miami. He said, we love this show. He said, if I finance this series, would you do it? I said, of course. He said, I'm going to come to, to L.A. I'm going to meet with the top guys at ABC, and I'm going to make a proposal. And the proposal was, uh, Miami will pay for the production of the show. The network can have two free runs as long as the Miami station owns the back-end syndication rights. And ABC said, we wouldn't consider it. <laughs> and that was that, okay? So, getting back to where I met Suzanne. I get a call from ABC right after that saying, um, you did a lot of on-camera in Canada, right? I said, yeah. I said, I did from 1955 until... 19, from 55 until 67. Okay, I, so in the 90-minute special, you were not on camera. No, I was. Okay. I was on for the whole show. That's what I think. So they saw yeah. you. Yeah, I was the guy. Right, so they saw you. What was the question? Okay, the question was, would you like to host a game show on ABC? I said, great. So I go on and talk to them, and that was, they had the newlywed game, the dating game, and my show was called the anniversary game, okay? So it was this troika. And they said, we don't have any studios in L.A. Would you mind shooting in San Francisco? I said, great. So I go to San Francisco, and I'm up there for a couple of weeks in pre-production. We're laying out what the set looks like and who the people are, and we're hiring you know, production people, etc. And uh, first day of production, I'm standing on the stage at ABC in San Francisco. And on the other side of the stage, I see the most beautiful girl-woman I've ever seen in my whole life. And I'm thinking, I have to go over there. So I start walking across the stage, and I'm not good with come on lines, okay? I always thought, hi, if I say, hi, I'm Alan Hamill, the bullshit light starts flashing. Right? Okay. So I get right up to her, and I still don't know what I'm going to say. So I said, would you mind getting me a cup of coffee? <laughs> <laughs> and she did. And we've been together ever since, 50 years.
Okay. Yeah. Uh, there's so much there. The average person became aware of Suzanne when she was in American Graffiti in 73. Okay. Were but she you- never got credit on the, on the she, she was not credited on that movie. You can go through the credits, you will not see the name Suzanne And Was that intentional? No, it was that she had, uh, she mouthed, I love you. That right. was it. If she was like an extra, she couldn't even say it out loud. And George uh, Lucas, Lucas, who had uh, seen her a few days before, had um, uh, cast her, and then she, her agent called her and said, you got this thing, and it's a small part, and what is it? Well, you have to say, I love you. So Suzanne stayed up all night practicing how to say, I love you. And when she got there, he said, uh, just mouth it. Okay? <laughs> so she was not credited. And what's interesting, after she, she was on Three's Company, which was from 77 on, right. ABC uh, ran uh, American Graffiti, and they promoted it by saying, American Graffiti starring Suzanne Summers." <laughs> okay, so you meet her in 69 or what year? I meet her in 68. 68. Yeah. Okay, so what happens between 68 and 73 for her? Um, she, she had won a scholarship to Lone Mountain College. I think it was a girls' college, Catholic girls' college. And um, because she had done Guys and Dolls in high school, and you're old enough to remember Walter Winchell. Of course. Walter Winchell turned up for this production in this San Bruno, which is a little blue collar, used to be a blue collar town in Northern California, to see the production because he was represented in Guys and Dolls by one of the characters. And I can't remember which one it is. After the show, he came up on stage, and we have a picture of this. And he walked up to Suzanne and he said, quote, you're going somewhere, sister. And that's how she got a, a, a scholarship to Lone Mountain College. But the first year she was there, she got pregnant. And a Catholic girl gets pregnant. Okay, church didn't like it. Uh, we're not, we don't like you very much because you got pregnant and you weren't married. So she got married, and within a year she was divorced. And then I came along, and I, I had just gotten a divorce as well. And we realized that uh, this was not just a... Uh, a dating situation. Uh, I had never felt this way before. And she called her mother that day and said, the day we met, and said, I met the man I'm going to marry. Okay. So it was for real. I, I, I didn't know what I was feeling. I just knew that this was serious. Okay. Because in Canada, I had, I had being on television every day, I, I had access to a lot of attractive women. And most of them didn't go anywhere. It was just a, uh, it, I won't say what it was. It was just a, a short relationship. This was very, very serious for me. And uh, all I wanted to do was to be with her constantly. So since we started living together in the early 70s, I think around 71 or Okay, let's go back to when you met her in 68. Yeah. What was she doing every day? She was struggling. She, uh, she, her family were, uh, except for her mother, uh, were all drunk, serious alcoholics. She had been raised in a, uh, a house with a physically violent, crazed alcoholic father whose job was to 
put cases of beer on boxcars, and they didn't have coffee breaks, they had beer breaks. And he'd come home every night shit-faced and, uh, you know, bang down a few shots of whiskey and some more beer. And then he would start to hunt down the family. So the family uh, slept most nights in a little closet, Suzanne, her two brothers, her sister, and her mother. And they had a lock on the inside of the closet so he couldn't uh, get to them. And that's where they slept most nights. And this went on for years. And one night, uh, Suzanne, I guess, was 15 or 16, going to her first prom. Her mother made her dress. And it was this beautiful dress, Suzanne described it to me. And she had it hanging uh, in her room so that she could lay in bed and look at it and dream. And her father burst through the door in the middle of the night, flipped on the light, and went right to the dress and ripped it up and ripped it in half. And she started screaming and crying. Her mother came in. What's going on here? Uh, the father hit the mother in the breast. The, the, the mother went down. Suzanne picked up her tennis racket and hit her father over the head. And blood gushed out of his head. They took him to emergency. When he came home, his head was all bandaged up. From that time on, um, what Suzanne realized was her father was afraid of her because that was the first time anyone in the family uh, had ever fought back. So the family was drunk for years. The father was this crazed, crazed guy uh, who wanted to be my friend, and I had no interest in being his friend. And the more I pushed him away, the more he tried to be my friend. And he was not stupid at all. Uh, he, was, he was smart and he was funny, funny guy. I think that's where Suzanne got her comedic instincts. Uh, but it was brutal growing up that way. And uh, one day Suzanne uh, said to announce to her family, uh, one day I'm going to be a big star. This is when she was in high school. I'm going to be a big star, and my mother's going to be sitting in the front row. And guess what? It happened. 1980, opening at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas for the first time. There's her mother sitting in the front row. Okay, what happened to the rest of the kids in the family? They all stopped drinking, including the father. Really? The mother, the mother would clean up after the father every night. He had this thing about going into the refrigerator and throwing food all over the place, breaking dishes. Then he would pass out and throw up on the floor with all the broken dishes. And she would clean it up, clean him up, and drag him off to bed. She went to Al-Anon, and Al-Anon said, don't pick him up. Let him wake up and realize what he had done. So she started leaving him on the floor, and that's when he decided to go get sober. And the, her siblings, are they all okay today? Younger brother died uh, when he was 47. Uh, he was an alcoholic and a drug addict. And uh, seven children and uh, gone. gone. Okay. And the other siblings? The other siblings are in great shape. Uh, her older brother 
uh, has a carpeting business, which he's owned for most of his life. Uh, the sister uh, married uh, her childhood sweetheart, the only man she's ever been with. They celebrated their 50th anniversary about uh, five years ago, I guess. And those two have produced a family of 51 people. Between children, grandchildren... Are and they great, still in San Bruno? And great-grandchildren. They live down the street in... Uh, it's an upscale community. Uh, Hills, Hillsborough? No. I don't know that area. Anyway, they live in a... And to what degree, once Suzanne becomes successful, yeah. are they asking her for money? Not that I'm aware of. Okay. Not that I'm aware of. She had written a book, um, I think it was in 19... In the late 80s, called Keeping Secrets. And we had all read books about, written by famous people uh, who talked about their, usually their father being an alcoholic. Right. Keeping Secrets was about Suzanne, who didn't drink, but how it affected her. Because when you're living with an alcoholic, you become as sick as the alcoholic, even if you don't drink. And her, her thing was not drugs or alcohol. Uh, her craziness was spending money she didn't have, creating a crisis, because crises were familiar for her, okay? When you spend every night hiding from your father in a closet, that's a crisis. You're living in constant fear and terror. So she was most comfortable that way. And she said to me one day, I could tell the mood my father was in by looking at the back of his head. And she said, I would then behave as is. In other words, uh, she wouldn't behave the way she felt she wanted to behave. She would behave in a way that was resonant with him. So to keep the cap on, okay? But it never worked, of course. Just to be clear, when she spent money she didn't have, that was before she had money or after she had money? No, before she had money. Okay. I remember the book. So she has a child. She's out of the college. Yeah. Before she meets you, what is she doing and how does she end up on the set? She gets a call. She had a semi-agent in California in uh, San Francisco, and she got a call saying they're looking for a prize model on this game show. She had never been in a TV studio in her life. So she turns up. Uh, no one bothered giving her any direction, like when you open the refrigerator right. door and you know you look at the camera with the red light. So she opened the refrigerator door, but she didn't look at the camera with the red light, so they fired her the first day. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. You know what? It's good they fired her. Because if they didn't fire her, I don't know whether... I don't know whether we would have had an evolved relationship. So it were. It, you I, mean evolved mentally or evolved into that it happened? I, in all the years I did television in Canada, I never messed around with any of the women who worked with me ever. Uh, it was too dangerous. And what happens if it doesn't work out? Now you're... You see him every day. Yeah, absolutely. So I never did that. So would I have done that with Suzanne uh, if she had gotten the job and stayed on the show? Um, I don't know. It was pretty, pretty powerful attraction. Okay. So you become involved with Suzanne. It's an instant romance. Um, 
Now, you had a long career where you were in front. Did you immediately say to yourself, I'm going to put her in front? I kept going back to Canada to do television after I moved here. And uh, from 19... 1974 or 5 until 1980, I did the Alan Hamill show, which was uh, like Carson. As a matter of fact, the production people we hired, uh, we stole from Carson because <laughs> we wanted Carson's Rolodex. So right. I had every guest Carson ever had. Um, so I did that show, and then uh, her contract with Three's Company was up in 1980. And uh, so it was time to renegotiate, which is normal in the industry. Right. Okay. How many years was the initial contract? I think it was, I think it was five. Usually five, I think it right. was five. And was everybody else on five? Yes, but they had renegotiated. John and Joyce had already renegotiated okay. because they had hired them before Suzanne. Okay. So I go to the negotiation and at ABC and the ABC lawyer is there. Uh, one of the producers is there, and some other guy. And within two minutes, they tell me she's fired. I said, fired? For asking for what? She's fired. That was it. There was no explanation. She's fired. So I got up and I left. Okay? Then I discovered that Laverne and Shirley had renegotiated their deal three weeks earlier. And it was a monumental deal. I mean, without Laverne and Shirley, there's no Laverne and of Shirley. Of course. Okay? So they scored big time, huge. And the parent company of ABC, and today if, if they decided to do this at a board meeting, they'd all be thrown in prison. The parent company of ABC decided, we have to stop women from asking to be paid parity with the men. So let's fire the biggest female star in television and no other woman will ever ask to be paid uh, parity with the men. So they did. It was the dumbest. You know, I ran into a guy from Cats, which is an independent distributor of TV shows, at one of those conventions. And he said to me, her firing was known as the biggest self-inflicted wound in the history of television. He said, we know that they lost over a billion in terms of license fees and back end. He said, by the time this show plays out, he said, it'll be more than that. Okay. The, on the street, the word was that she asked for too much. That wasn't a factor? She actually asked for, I actually asked for half of what men were making whose shows were in the top 20. Her show was number one. She had the highest demographic. So, see, what, what, you're, what you're saying to me right now is what the PR company for the producers did. They destroyed her after that. She was this greedy bitch, and she you know, didn't deserve to have the job, and we gave her the job, and all she wanted, she's a money grubber, et cetera, et cetera. I asked for 50% of what the men were making and a piece of the back end. Okay, it wouldn't have mattered if I had asked for a nickel. They had decided to fire Suzanne Summers, so it had nothing to do, nothing to do, with my request uh, for a new contract. It had nothing to do with that. They had decided to fire her, and I had gotten a call from someone who was with the parent company, who was a mutual friend, and he said, "We're not having this conversation." He said, "I came out of a meeting." 
And he said, they've decided to fire, no, they've decided to hang a nun in the marketplace. Remember what the <laughs> Romans used to do? Right. Right? They've decided to hang a nun in the marketplace, and Suzanne Summers is going to be it. Okay? And I said, you're kidding. He said, no, they're going to fire her. I said, are you kidding? The greatest chemistry on television between Suzanne and John and Joyce are going to fire? They're going to destroy this show? He said, they're going to fire her. He said, this decision is not coming from creative people. It's coming from business people. They're just looking at the bucks. That's all they care about. They're looking at the dollar signs, okay? And that's how it happened. Okay, let's go back. So you meet her in 68. Yeah. To what degree, you have your parallel career. To what degree are you involved in her career? I'm not really involved in her career at all. Um, she was uh, trying to make ends meet. I didn't know this. Right. You know, she kept it from me. Um, I was spending four days a week in San Francisco. She moved to Sausalito. Uh, I think Which, of get, course, is across the bay. Right. To get away from, I think, from her family. Right. And so I moved to, so I was living in a Japanese hotel in San Francisco, uh, the Mayako. I moved to Sausalito and got myself a houseboat. I thought, if I'm going to live in Sausalito. Of course, you got to do it upright. I, gotta, I have to be on a houseboat, right? So on one side of me, I had a surgeon, and on the other side of me, I had a drug dealer. So I knew if I had any health problems, the guy's right next door, <laughs> and I didn't have to go into town to buy any drugs, the guy's right next door on the other side. By the way, I don't do drugs. Okay. Um, so every night, um, she'd put her son to bed, and the babysitter would come, and she'd come to my houseboat. And I'd cook dinner for her, and uh, we'd sit and watch the moon come over the Golden Gate Bridge, and it was just this wonderful romance. It was, like, incredible. And I hated being away from her. And so for the past... Let me go back. She gets fired. I said to her, I'm leaving my talk show. And she said, don't do that. She said, you'll miss it. I said, I've talked to everybody I want to talk to. Okay, I'm ready. Okay, I've been doing television for 25 years. I'm really ready. She said, what are you going to do? I said, you don't have an agent. You don't have a manager. You have nobody. You don't know what you're doing. I said, you're going to give it away and you'll just fade. I said, we're going to make this work for us. I know how to do this. Okay? That was in 1980. And uh, she spent a year. Well, before we go there, okay, just to lay out the thing, how did she end up getting Three's Company? Uh, she got a call from, uh, actually from a woman who worked for me uh, in casting who said, uh, can I work with Suzanne? I said, yeah, sure. So she somehow got a call and sent, uh, called Suzanne, and Suzanne went in. And Suzanne had done like eight or nine pilots, none of which had sold. And I used to joke with her and say, anyone who does eight or nine pilots must be a stewardess. <laughs> By the way, we can't use the word stewardess anymore. I know that. It's, it's a flight, flight attendant. flight attendant now, okay? I got a big discussion with somebody. They said someone was from India. You know, they're South Asian. You know, the I go out of my way to be politically incorrect. It pisses me off that someone should decide what my language should be, okay? There's something called the First Amendment, 
and it's the Freedom of Speech Amendment, and I exercise it liberally. And the idea that, you know, when the Internet started, when the Internet started, and I started uh, emailing in caps, right? I started getting people saying to me, why are you yelling at me? Yeah, stop shouting. I said, who, who, excuse me, whose rule is that? Who decided that caps were yelling? I said, I write in caps because I'm over 45, and most of the people I deal with are over 45, and they would appreciate reading caps rather than lowercase. Okay? They said, you're yelling. So I never found out who made the rule. Somebody made the rule. Okay, but I hate all that politically correct bullshit. Okay, okay, let's go. What? But you can't say the N word, right? No. Okay, so but there are limits. There are limits. Okay. Well, it's like you know, running into a theater or yelling fire. I right. Mean, it's the same deal. Okay, let's go back. How does a nice Jewish boy from Canada end up on television? When I graduate, first of all, how do you know I'm Jewish? First, Hamill's a Jewish name. Secondly, it's all over online that you're Jewish. Okay. And I'm Jewish too, and it's a Jewish holidays. So that's another thing, you know, if I, I wasn't Jewish, I right. couldn't say a nice Jewish right. boy. But I am, so I can. I thought I might have run into you at the steam bath. No, okay? no, no, no. Okay. Uh, I graduated from high school in Canada when I was, uh, let's see, 50, when I was uh, 18. Let's stop for a minute there. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to Bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. 
you know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. We're in Canada, Toronto. And your parents, Canadian or they came from the old country? Both. They came from the old country and Canadian. Okay. Where did my they come fa- from? From Poland. My father came from uh, uh, from Poland right after his bar mitzvah in 1905. He was born in 1892. Okay. How many people have fathers who were born in 1892? Not many. And so he came over in 1905. And in those days, the federal would be immigrants wanted to live in New York, Philadelphia, Boston, or Chicago. So the federal government said, we will give anybody a one-way train ticket to anywhere else in America other than those four cities. So my father went to Texas to be a cowboy. (laughs) (laughs) And he loved it. He lived in Austin, Texas for three years and just always talked about the Texans, how polite they were, how wonderful they were. And I don't know what he did. He had some uh, work, some blue-collar job there. And he slept in a what he called a flop house every night. And he said, I had to sleep on my boots, otherwise someone would have stolen them. Okay, and I said, so how did you, if you, where did you eat if you didn't have a kitchen? He said there was a brewery, and for a nickel they would give you a big stein of beer, and then they'd lay out all these uh, 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 lunch things, breads and and sliced meats and pickles and things. He said I didn't drink beer, so I would take my stein of beer and I'd sell it to somebody else for three cents, and then I would eat. And he said, I would have one meal a day, and that would, that would be it, okay? My mother came over after World War I in 1919. And the two of them met. My mother had a job. My well, well, a little bit. He's in Texas. When does he leave Texas for Toronto? He le- Oh, a good, good question. He leaves Texas in uh, 1908 or 9 because one of his brothers had moved to Chicago. So he goes to Chicago. Uh, my father gets a job working in a sweatshop uh, making pockets. Tailor, not a tailor, an operator. They call right. operators. And uh, within a week, they go on strike. <laughs> so my father doesn't know what a strike is. Okay, right. They didn't have strikes in Poland. Okay, they killed you. So they go on strike, and he's standing there, and all of a sudden, a cop on horseback rides in, clubs him over the head, and blinds him in his right eye. Really? That's when my father decided, I'm getting out of this country. So he moves to Toronto. Did he know anybody in Toronto? Yeah, he had a sister living there. Okay. Okay? No, a brother, another brother. So he moves to Toronto and loves living in Toronto. And then World War I happens. And he gets you know sucked into the military. And he says to the recruiter, but I'm blind in my right eye. And he said, so you'll shoot with your left eye. <laughs> and I, I mean, even today, they don't know how many people they lost in World War I. It was like by the pound. Right. They just kept loading guys onto ships and sending them overseas. So then my parents met. My mother's first job was uh, scrubbing floors in the train station. And my father got another job making pockets, uh, which was his lifelong job. And uh, my father uh, was the most honest, purest man I've ever met in my whole life. And I learned that lesson the hard way when I was about 15 or 16. I had a date, one of my first dates, okay, with Molly. And then Susie came along, and I really wanted to go out with Susie. So I made a date with Susie, but I had to give i had to give molly a reason why i wasn't available so i said to my dad so if molly calls 
tell her blah, 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 blah. And I left and I went out with Susie. When I came home, I asked my dad, I said, did uh, Molly call? He said, yeah. I said, what'd you tell her? He said, I told her you were out with Susie. <laughs> and that's when I realized my father was not capable of lying, okay? And uh, he was a functional illiterate. He, he would spend his days reading, 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 reading. He couldn't write. He could barely sign his name. So my mother did everything. And my mother, uh, like most immigrants, ran a boarding house, and which they bought the house in, uh, in the 20s. I can't remember when. And it was a little house, but we, there were 17 people living there, okay? One toilet. We had eight Chinese brothers. Four had been born in Hawaii, four in China. We had uh, Reverend John A. Sutherland, a Scottish minister. We had Eric Deleuze, a Trinidadian artist. We had Van, he Van, Van Alphen, who was a Dutch cartographer. We had a blind alcoholic trumpet player. We had Harry Lando, a Jewish tailor. And we had Bill Monger, a British engineer, plus my sister, myself, and my two parents. And I slept in the dining room with my parents till I was eight years old. Never had my own room, okay? Oh, we had one other guy, Okwachukwa Ikajani, who was a Ni Nigerian prince who was going to the University of Toronto Medical School. And I loved living with him. He had this great barrel laugh, and we were, we just, we were good together, okay? And he was a great farter. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, in the middle of the night, <laughs> I'd be awakened, okay? <laughs> okay. I'd wake up and I'd say, Oki, he would call him Oki. Oki, are you kidding? <laughs> and he'd say, ha, ho, and he had the, oh, oh. he had that great laugh. <laughs> he, um, he'd go to Nigeria every summer for vacation, come back with a big uh, bag, canvas bag, filled with twigs. And the twigs were about four or five inches long, and that's how he brushed his teeth. And he'd hold the twig in his mouth till it softened up, and then he'd brush his teeth with it, and he had the greatest teeth in the world, <laughs> okay? So there's something wrong with our fluoridated, <laughs> okay. Uh, so anyway, um, where were we? You graduate from high school. Graduate from high school. Everybody in my family is a doctor. Everybody, except my father. Um, and because uh, all their parents uh, came from the old country. And the most respected man in the village was the doctor. So when they got to Canada, they said to their sons, you're going to be a doctor. And if you're not going to be a doctor, you're going to be a lawyer. Of course. And if you're a loser, you'll be an accountant. Right. Okay. So they all became doctors. I, that's why I became a lawyer. Okay. <laughs> right. I was indoctrinated from, you know, consciousness. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So I didn't want to become a doctor because Oki, who was going to the medical school, would take me to the lab, okay, at night where he was experiment on rabbits and rats and things. And the smell in the lab was horrendous. And I couldn't stand blood, looking at blood. And he'd open up a rat and show me the rat's heart beating inside. And I'd think... I can't do this, I can't, I don't, so I'm not going to become a doctor, okay? So I graduated from high school. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know where I'm going to go, what I'm going to do. And I had had, I've always worked. Uh, my first job was when I was six. Uh, I worked at the Campus Grossateria across the street from our house 
on Saturdays, and I was in charge of opening the door for the shoppers. And I made a, I made a buck a day. That was a lot of money. Uh, but my favorite job, I worked for the Canadian National Railway from the time I was 13 to the time I was 17. I was a newsie, okay? And what does a newsie do? Well, I would walk up and down the aisle of the train, and some of these trains were like two miles long. I'd have a basket on this arm, and I'd have a case of uh, Cokes on this arm. And in those days, uh, Coke cases were made out of solid wood. Right, right. And bottles. And okay. Of course. Okay. This arm, I'm right-handed. To this day, my left arm is stronger than my <laughs> right arm, okay? And I'd walk down the aisle and I'd say, cigarettes, matches, chocolate bars, chewing gum, peanuts, biscuits, and oranges, novelty contraceptives, pillows, and comic books. Did you, okay, did you sell any newspapers? No. Okay. No. Okay. There was no money in selling newspapers. <laughs> okay. Right? So I was making $350, $400 a week. Wow. Cash. And this was in... Let's see, 36, 46. This was in the early 50s. Okay. My father was making $25 a week, okay, making pockets. Most people were making 25, 30, 35 right. bucks a week, okay? So I started buying custom suits. Okay, but just to know, yeah. were you that good a newsie or would all newsies make that kind of money? No. Well, I don't know. I, I don't know what other newsies were making. I was really good at it, and I was a kid. Okay, who doesn't want to help a kid? Right. I didn't have to say to people, I'm working my way through anything. I just, I was a kid. Right. Okay. And uh, so they bought, they bought from me. And the night before I would go on the train, I'd go to the butcher and I'd have him cut uh, slices of ham for me. So he'd cut a slice of ham and hand it to me and say, is this thin enough? <laughs> I hold it up to the light. And if I couldn't see the light through the ham, I'd say, no, no, it's got to be thinner than that. Right. So I would get 150 slices of ham. I think 150 slices, maybe a pound. Right. Okay? I'd buy uh, white bread. That was the only time white bread ever made its way into my mother's exactly. house. Okay. And I would make ham sandwiches and ham and cheese sandwiches. And I would sell them for 35 cents and 45 cents on the train. Okay. Uh, I would rent pillows, little baby pillows going west and then Coming east, I'd turn the, the, the cases inside out and rent them on the way back. I'd rent comic books for a nickel. Uh, the novelty contraceptives, okay? There were three of them. I had the French tickler. You can only imagine what that is. I had the alligator. You can only imagine what that is. And the third one was, uh, and the clown face. <laughs> what was that? Okay. <laughs> it was a condom with a clown face at the end, Okay. <laughs> And those, I, I, I could sell those day and night. It was amazing. Mainly to young men, young soldiers going home, you know, on vacation to see their girlfriends or their wives or whatever. And they would always buy all my novelty contraceptives. And I would buy them in Winnipeg for, I think I'd get three of them, three of them in a pack for 30 cents. And I could sell them for anywhere between a dollar and four dollars okay when you got on the train yeah. in toronto where did it go okay in the summertime i'd go cross country i'd go toronto vancouver and we'd stop in winnipeg overnight and i'd stay in this hotel next to the train station it was two dollars and fifty cents a night 
and there was no toilet, uh, no bath, no toilet, no shower. There was a, only a sink. And I wouldn't use the sink because I knew that every guy who stayed there peed in the sink, okay? So you had to go down the hall to get a shower and, you know, use the toilet. Right. Um, on weekends when I was going to school, I would use short hauls to Toronto, Ottawa, Toronto, uh, Montreal, Toronto, uh, Muskoka, Gravenhurst, etc. cetera. Uh, but I loved the summers. And I got to see the country, okay? Uh, I got all the way from Vancouver all the way to Newfoundland. Wow. And most Canadians have never been east of Montreal. East of Montreal is Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Prince Edward Island, and Newfoundland. Most Canadians have never been there, which is a, tra was a, a travesty because some of the most beautiful country on the planet is there. And the people are incredible. People in Newfoundland... Incredible. Newfoundland is closer to Ireland than it is to the rest of Canada. That's how far east it is. Canada well, also, news, I remember being at the turn of the uh, the millennium, and it's like a half hour. You know, it's like a, what you know. They're also they're celebrating. <laughs> right. I go, what's going on? Yeah, yeah. Well, in uh, uh, Nova Scotians like to drink, and they have a rum called Screech. And if you go to Nova Scotia, you go into one of their saloons. Uh, you can be screeched. What does that mean? Well, first of all, you buy everyone in the saloon a drink, a shot of screech, okay? It's this awful right. rum, awful rum, right? Uh, so for you to be screeched by the bartender, you have to kiss a cod, a real codfish, on the lips, and then you bang down a shot of screech, everyone applauds, and then they give you a certificate saying, you've been screeched, okay? <laughs> Okay, so you're selling stuff on the train. Yeah. Uh, you continue to go to school or you start your show business career? No, I continue. Uh, no, I wasn't in show business then. I was between the ages of 13 and 17. Okay, so you graduate from high school. Then what do you do? When I'm 18, uh, I don't know what I'm going to do. And one of the guys in my class says to me, um, what are you going to do? And I said, I have no idea. I, I, I don't know. I'm not going to be a doctor. I know that. He said, well, you got to figure out what you're going to do. He said, you're not going to go work. I said, no. He said, you know, Ryerson, uh, University, yeah, Ryerson University in Toronto, uh, they have a radio and television arts course, and you have a nice voice. He said, why don't you go down and audition? That's what I did. I walked in. I saw TV cameras. I saw studios like this, and I thought, I'm home. This is perfect for me, Okay. So uh, I, uh, I went there for one year. I won a scholarship. And uh, writing a midterm exam in year two, uh, the professor comes up to me and he puts a little uh, post-it on the, on the table with a name and an address. He said, uh, they're auditioning at the CBC radio network for someone to host a daily three-hour classical music show. I think you could get it. I said, oh, great. He said, put down your pencil and just quietly leave the room. I told them you'd be there in 20 minutes. <laughs> so as far as I know, my midterm exam is still sitting on a desk somewhere, you know, Ryerson. Um, that was my first job in show business, uh, which I, I hosted that show for five years. I loved doing it. And I had studied at the Royal Conservatory of Music. I think my mother decided I was going to be a concert pianist like all Jewish mothers. Right. Okay. 
Um, and that's how I got the job, actually, because the audition was a little tricky. Like they had words in there that unless you knew how to pronounce them, you would not pronounce like right. Dvorak. Right. There's no je. Right. It's Dvorak, which is the incorrect way of right. pronouncing it. Right. So I nailed, I nailed the audition, got the job. And uh, they sent me to Windsor, Ontario, which is across the river from Detroit. Of course. And I, my first year, I made $3,300, okay? And I'm thinking, I made a lot more money working on the train. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> right. So then I started doing commercials in Detroit for Chrysler. And uh, so in 19... So I was there... I went there in 1955. And in 1956... Uh, along with my my three thousand three hundred dollar uh, money I got from the CBC, I made twenty five thousand dollars doing commercials. Wow! So I call. Who do you call when you make twenty five thousand dollars? Your mother. So I called my mother. I said, "Guess what? I made twenty five thousand dollars." And without taking a breath, she said, "And how much have you saved?" <laughs> <laughs> So that was the beginning. I stayed in Windsor for five years. Did you save any or did you blow it? No, I blew it. <laughs> I blew it. I was, I was making custom suits. I was going to the New York, uh, custom, New York Custom Shirt Shop or whatever it was called, having custom shirts made with my initials on the sleeve. Uh, I was wearing black silk stockings with garters, not <laughs> garter belts, but you know, just below the knee. Right. I don't know who that person is, okay? Even today, I look back on it, and I see pictures of myself, and I'm thinking, what, who, what were you thinking? <laughs> who did you think you were then? And the answer is, I don't know. Right. Okay? So then I moved to Toronto in 1960, back to Toronto in 1960. As a classical DJ? Uh, well, I gave up the—after uh, five years, I gave up the classical DJ job, and I moved into TV at the CBC in Toronto. And I was on TV there from uh, from sixty to uh, sixty eight when I moved here. Okay, how does one make the transition from radio to TV? How do you make the transition? Well, I can tell you. Um, while I was in Windsor in nineteen early sixty, there was a store called the Metropolitan. And they had a terrible gas explosion in the store. There were people, uh, there were fatalities, people wounded. And it blew all the stuff from the store out into the street. And the radio station was half a block away. So I was the first guy on the scene doing reports, right? And what was tragic was everything was covered in dust and you, 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 I thought I saw a baby. It wasn't a baby. It was a doll. And the, it was filled with people, people who were really badly wounded. So I started doing reports. And next thing I'm doing reports for Toronto as well. And I'm doing some reports for American outlets as well. And I got a call from Toronto saying we have an opening and he said, she said, we rarely have an opening. She said, we'd like you to come and join us. So I went, moved to Toronto and I went into TV. And at, I, at first you're doing what? Pardon? At, what is your role at first in television? Uh, the first role was sitting in a booth every night for hours saying, this is the CBC television network. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. How did that evolve? What was the next step? 
The next step was um, doing commercials, live commercials on a primetime music show. And once I did that, that was became like my showcase, okay? And then I started getting calls. And I, by the time I finished television in Canada in 1980, uh, I had done close to 4,000 hours of network television. Okay, just very quickly. So you're doing commercials. What's the next step? What do you do to ultimately work your way up to the Johnny Carson-esque talk show? I just did a lot of shows. I did... I did a, my first uh, series was a show called Razzle Dazzle. It was a kid's show that was on every day on the network, <clears throat> every day for half an hour. It was live. I did that for five years. You did what? You were the host? I was the, one of the hosts and one of the players, one of the okay, actors. So you, okay. okay. Then I did, at the, simultaneously, I did a sh the show called Night Camp, which was the satirical show. Right. And that ran for five years, 1965. Um, I, I did the commentary at the Tokyo Olympics in 1964. I did the commentary in early 68, uh, at the Mexican Olympics. Um, uh, I did a show called Cine Club, which was a, a show about short film festival films. Uh, I did a show called On the Scene, which was a, uh, a show where we'd go to a different, a, venue, a different location or a different city every week. Uh, and I created a show called Sports Date uh, that specialized in sports that uh, were not on TV. No baseball, no football, no hockey. Like Wide World of Sports in America. We, we did ballooning over the Alps. We did Thailand boxing. We did skydiving in Abbotsford, British Columbia. We did all the off. So oh, then I created the... The Canadian International Deep Sea Canadian International Invitational Deep Sea Fishing Tournament in the Bahamas. Okay, and we invited uh, the heads of all five oil companies, and they loved coming. <laughs> and we had hats, and we had little medals, and we had the whole thing. And it was all to get the hell out of Toronto. Of course, winter, I heard that time. coming. Okay, right, right, yeah, right, right. As far as I know, that thing may still be running. Okay. The key to your success was or is? Wow. My mother. Okay. Explain a little bit further. Uh, my mother um, was very smart. So she ran a boarding house, right? Right. When she died, she was a millionaire from the boarding house. Um. She believed in me no matter what I wanted to do. When I told her when I was 13 years old, I'm getting a job on the railroad and I'm going to be traveling all over the country, she said, great, okay? Uh, how many mothers would say to their 13-year-olds? Not many, especially okay. today, none. Right. So whatever I wanted to do, she was behind me all the way. She encouraged me. Uh, when I won a scholarship, she turned up. Uh, so... I, I have to believe that my, both my parents heavily influenced my life. My father, because of his purity and his honesty and his loyalty, uh, and I suffer from some of those diseases myself, uh, but my mother, just, uh, you, can, whatever, you can do it. Whatever you want to do. Okay, you can but do. I've I've also been in Los Angeles, i.e., Hollywood, for so long to know 
that there are certain stripes of people, usually people who can't fit into the regular world, who have certain skills that allow things to go forward, whether it be the gift of gab or creativity in terms of making up shows or something. What skills do you uh, believe helped you in that area? Okay. I, I've, I've always had the gift for gab. And I think it happened when I worked on the trains. Okay. Because aside from just running up and down the train, you know, selling stuff, I talked to people. I talk to adults. You know, when kids talk to adults, they get to be adult. Right. And I think uh, that uh, that helped me a lot in my life and in my business. Um, I am somewhat introverted normally. Uh, when Suzanne and I go out to a big party, I usually find a nice quiet place at the bar. And she loves work in the room. And I just kind of hang out at the bar, and I don't care if anyone talks to me or not. And Suzanne's given up saying, why don't you talk to people? I said, I'd rather just stand here and watch people, okay? And uh, so the answer is I don't know. In front of a camera, I'm not introverted at all, okay? I'm, I'm right out there. I love performing. Um, or I loved uh, past tense performing. And uh, today, Suzanne and I do uh, two or three Facebook live shows every week. Oh, well, before we get there, let's clean up the past before we get okay. to uh, After Three's company. Okay. So I okay. would think working for the CBC, even when you hit the ceiling with a nightly talk show, it's not yeah. that lucrative. It, it was pretty lucrative. It was. When I left the CBC in 68, uh, the first month I was living in L.A., I got a call from the CBC saying, uh, we're, we're doing a new show on Saturday night called In Person. We'd love you to host it. And I said, I'm living in L.A. now. And they said, so you'll fly back. We'll shoot, you know, two or three shows at one time, and it won't be a big deal. I said, okay. Uh, I said, just pay me what I made the last year at the CBC. And they said, it's not a problem. I get a call back three days later, and the guy says to me, we can't pay you what you made last year. I said, but you paid me what I made last year. Yeah, but we can't just pay you. You earned it. I said, well, I'm going to earn it again. You want me to do the show? No, but you did so many shows that you, you, you made four times more than the president of the CBC. I said, but my ratings are better than the president <laughs> of the CBC. Okay? Anyway, he said, okay, we're going to figure this out. So they did. I made... I made, I made $160,000, and that was in 1967, okay? A lot of money. A lot of money. I think, you know, baseball players, they were lucky were making 100 grand. Yeah, and hockey players are making 8000 Okay, do you play hockey? Are you a hockey fan? I played hockey every day of my life, okay? Every day of my life. And the only fist fights I ever got into were on the ice, so no one ever got hurt. You don't get hurt fighting on, right, right. when you're on ice. Uh, but I played every day, every single day. I love playing hockey. And uh, I, I gave up hockey uh, when I started working. So uh, there's a bunch of crazy Canadians who live here. Right. Okay. And uh, I get a call probably once a month. And they say, okay, we need one more. Come right. on. We need a forward. So they say, We're, it's next week at the blah, blah. And I say, are you friggin' crazy? <laughs> hockey? I'm an old guy. One body check and right. I'm in the hospital. No, no, but we don't body check. I said, 
don't tell me that. You guys get out on the ice and you think you're 18 again, okay? And you forget the rule about no body checking and you body check. He said, well, you know, it happens, okay? So I run into uh, Gretz, uh, Wayne Gretzky one night at a party and the two of us are standing at the bar and I, I said to him, I tell him the story about the crazy Canadians. He said, I get the same call. <laughs> I said, what do you say? He said, are you see?" Are you serious? Are you friggin' crazy? You think I'm going to come out and play hockey with you guys? Okay. <laughs> okay. So you have your nightly talk show in the 70s. Yeah. That the last time you're in front of the camera? In front of a network camera? Yeah. The last time I did a series. Okay. Uh, but we're now doing... A different kind of show. Okay, but let's before I told that for a second. Okay. okay, so you meet Suzanne in '68. Yeah. At what point do you get married? We get married in '77 when she got hired for Three's Company. I said, "Okay, you finally got a job, so let's get married." Okay. So I'll tell you something interesting about her first paycheck, which was not big. Okay, but she had never had a paycheck. Okay? Right. So she were you went, supporting her? Yeah. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to Bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. 
So I was paying all the bills, right. and I didn't have any money either, okay? Because uh, when I got my divorce, I did not want life to change for my two children. They were going to school in uh, uh, West Brent, Brent was somewhere, private school. I didn't want their life to change, so I simply left. All I took was my car with me, okay? I rented uh, an apartment um, in Beverly Hills, for $200 a month. Right. And it was this terrible, crummy, one-bedroom. One bedroom was like a little bigger than this desk. But it was my place. And that's where Suzanne and I started living together. We'd been essentially living together before that. Uh, she'd come to L.A., and uh, I was living with a buddy of mine in Bel Air. And I'd go to, to San Francisco, to Sausalito, etc. But we officially started living together in seventy, early seventy, sometime. Uh, so I'm so depressed after leaving my wife. What was the motivation for leaving your wife? I only knew her for two weeks before we got married. We shouldn't have gotten married. Okay, we got married when I was twenty or twenty. And how long did that last? Ten years. Okay, but I was away. Okay. I think I created those shows for the CBC to get me out of town. <laughs> it's not that I just, I didn't dislike her. I really liked her a lot. She was this very talented artist and a lot of humor, etc. But uh, I wasn't in love with her. We should have just been friends. Okay. So it wasn't this terrible, awful thing. It was just that we just kind of grew apart and it was kind of natural to get a divorce. Um, so I walked away with my car. I didn't take any money. I didn't take, I took nothing. And I rent this uh, crummy apartment and I'm really depressed, really depressed. And for a good year and a half, two years, uh, I didn't answer the phone. I didn't open a letter. Uh, I didn't want to see anybody. Uh, I was depressed and humiliated um, I knew how my mother felt about it because she told me. She said, nice boys don't leave their wives because no one in the family had ever gotten a divorce, even though they shouldn't, they should have gotten right, a divorce. Of course. Okay. I mean, my parents were together for 63 years. They should have, you know, gotten a divorce 20 years earlier. Um, but no one just, no one did that. Of course. Okay. So one day I come home to my crummy $200 apartment and I walk in and uh, I had an aquarium with guppies, little aquarium. So I said, where's my aquarium? And she said, oh, I had to sell it. I said, why? She said, to pay the rent. But who's saying this? Suzanne. Okay. I had to sell your aquarium to pay the rent. I said, well, no one's going to pay you $200 for that crummy little look. She said, I also sold your clothes. I said, you sold my clothes? She said, you've never been poor, have you? I said, no. Even when I was living with my parents and I was poor, I didn't realize I was poor because we had everything. Right. Okay. I said, so, no, I've never been poor. She said, well, I have. She said, when you're poor, you sell your stuff. And then when you have money, you buy more stuff. I said, okay. 
So suddenly I had very few clothes. I actually had quite a wonderful wardrobe, okay? I had cashmere suits and the pants were lined in silk. I had wraparound uh, uh, overcoats made out of camel, whatever they call it, camel hair. You know? Right. That was all gone. So there are guys walking around L.A. <laughs> in your clothes. And if they look into their inside pocket, they'll see my name. They'll see my name and the date that it was, it was made for me. These are all custom clothes. Yeah. So how did you get out of the rut, out of the depression? So after a year and a half or two years, I'm in the bathroom and uh, really feeling terrible about myself. Because I'm thinking, this isn't me. I just feel awful. And I've never been depressed in my whole life. And I'm really depressed. I'm not suicidal, but I just feel like crap. I feel like I'm useless. And I feel badly because I left my children. So I'm in the bathroom. And I look around. There's no toilet paper. It's going to get a little graphic. Okay. All that was in the bathroom was the National Geographic. <laughs> okay. Have you ever used a page out of the National Geographic? I can't imagine it. The page is this thick. It's also shiny, that paper. I, I, you know. Okay. So I thought, okay, I finally hit the wall. This is it. So I call uh, a commercial agency called Abrams Rubeloff. It's a, they do commercials. They, they have people and they send them out to do commercials. And I'm t I talked to uh, Neil, uh, name? Yeah, Noel Rubeloff, and he said, oh, come on down. So I go down there, and we talk, and what do you do in Canada, television, blah, blah, blah. I said, okay, he said, I'll send you out. So uh, I was, in those days, well, I won't get to this. He sends me out to audition for a company called Household Finance. I don't even know. I, HFC, you see HFC. the all the time. Okay, I don't know if they're still around well, or not. I don't not. know either. Okay. So I walk in, I do the audition. There are these eight guys from the agency sitting around the, the conference table. I do the audition, and the guy in charge says to me, you sure sound like the right guy, but you don't look like the right guy. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, go down the hall, there's a bathroom, look at yourself in the mirror, and ask yourself the question, would you borrow money from a guy who looks like this? So I came back, I said, you're right. Because during the time I was depressed, I stopped dressing. And I was wearing funky jeans, work boots, uh, a denim jacket, some kind of funky shirt. Uh, I had a, a big natural. I had a mustache. I had a beard, a small beard going, etc. I said, I agree with you. I said, I would not borrow money from a guy who looks like me. I said, are you guys here tomorrow? And they said, yeah. I said, can I come back? Yes. So next morning, I turn up at 8 o'clock for an 8.30 meeting. And at 8.30, these, all eight guys walk in. They walk right by me. They didn't, they didn't <laughs> recognize me, right? I walked in, and they said, you got the job. I had a haircut. I shaved. I put on a suit with a shirt and a tie. And I looked like a guy you'd borrow money from. So I did three national spots. I made $50,000, which was a lot of money when you have no money. That's for sure. Even if you have money, $50,000, a lot of money. And uh, then I, I, I started doing a lot of commercials, voiceovers, and I really enjoyed it. It was easy money. 
And I didn't have to get dressed for you know any voiceovers. They'd right. call me, I'd turn up, and I'd shoot, you know, do a couple of commercials. And then in 19, 1973, maybe, 73, um, uh, I get a call to audition for a supermarket called Alpha Beta. Of course. And uh, they also want Suzanne to audition. And no one's ever heard of Suzanne Summers in 1973, right? So the two of us audition as a, as a couple. Uh, I get the job, she doesn't. So I did thousands of commercials, TV and radio, for Alpha Beta from 1973 three, I think, to 1980, and, uh, or 1979, maybe. And uh, I actually, I didn't get sick of doing them, but it was like I became the alpha beta man. And the, the, the tagline at every commercial was, tell a friend. And wherever I'd go, people would say, tell a friend. Right. And I'd go, ha, 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 like the first time I heard it. Right. So uh, it's now, no, I, okay. Suzanne and I, it's now 1979. And Suzanne and I are on a red eye to New York uh, for a meeting. And she just finished shooting Three's Company. And she's tired. We get on the plane. And we start arguing about nothing. And then we stop talking to each other. And now we're sitting beside each other, we're flying to New York, and we're not talking. We get to New York, we get into the, the, the car, the driver, to take us to this meeting. We get to the building, and instead of pushing the express elevator that goes to the 45th floor, I push the one that goes two, three, okay? Now we're not talking to each other, okay? We get on the elevator. We get as far away from one another as possible. The door opens on the second floor, and a guy gets on. He looks at Suzanne, looks at me, smiles, and says, tell a friend. Right. <laughs> and I said, fuck you, <laughs> okay? And I was surprised that I said that. But I was uh, pissed off at Suzanne. We weren't talking. There was this anger thing. Now, the guy that I said that to, I felt so badly afterwards. I wish I could apologize to him. He couldn't wait to get off the elevator <laughs> because Mr. Happy, that he'd seen do tons of commercials, okay, suddenly... He's trapped in this steel room with this lunatic, okay, who's yelling at him. Anyway, he gets off. Suzanne and I looked at each other. We started laughing <laughs> and realized, what are we fighting about? It's so stupid, okay? So, and by the way, from the time she was fired, which was when I left my uh, talk show, to today, because we're in business together, we have not spent one night apart in over 40 years, and we're together 24 hours a day. Wow, that's amazing. Okay, let's start there. She gets fired. What's your plan? 
because you do reinvent her and you have a lot of business enterprises. What was your what were your thoughts at the time? And I had no business enterprises. Um, I didn't have a plan, but I knew I could come up with a plan, which I did. So we're talking and, you know, what we're going to do and where we're going to do it and how we're going to do it. And the Three's Company people were ignorant about branding because I went to them and I said, we should brand Chrissy Snow, okay? We should brand the, the, the hair thing right? and the, the, the hot pants and the boots and the... And there should be a Saturday morning animated cartoon, you know, The Adventures of Chrissy. And they say, all we care about is the show. We don't care about anything else. I said, but don't you understand this brings more audience in? It brings more loyalty to the No, we don't care about that, okay? So one of the things that I talked to Suzanne about was branding. And branding was a fairly new word in 1980. There weren't too many people branded. I said, everybody knows who you are. I said the firing in one sense was really good because it put you on every newspaper right. in the country and talk show and interviews. And I said, that's all they're talking about is ABC fires Chrissy Snow from Three's Company. I said, so we're starting off by the fact that you are extremely well-known and will globally be well-known as well because the show ran in like 130 countries. <clears throat> So she said, you know, um, I did Guys and Dolls in high school, and I really enjoyed it. She said, uh, I'd like to do a show in Las Vegas. So it was her idea. Her idea, yeah. So I said, uh, jokingly, can you sing? And she <laughs> tried to try to hit me. So I go to Vegas. I go to the Sahara Hotel. Uh, they offered two weeks, big money. I go to the so you room. went cold once again. No agent, no uh, anybody no. else. I go to the Riviera, two weeks, big money, and I realize, oh, that's the format for big TV stars because they don't think they're going to last longer than two weeks. Right. So the mob was still running Vegas then. Okay, they were just beginning the transition, but the mob was still in charge. So I go to the MGM Grant, and the president's name is Bernie Rothkopf. Bernie Rothkopf was the nephew of Mo Dalitz. Mo Dalitz was head of the, the Cleveland mob, okay, Jewish mob. So uh, I bypassed the entertainment director. I learned from my first sale to ABC, go right to the top. I'm a total believer in that. Okay. Go to the person who can say yes or no. That's right. And they may say, it's not me, you have to talk to Fred. Right. But why go to Fred first? Exactly. Okay. So I walk into Bernie Rothkopf's office, and it's huge. It's, he's 50 feet away from the, <laughs> right. I'm not kidding. There's no furniture, okay, other than he had a little desk, probably three or four feet wide, and he's sitting in one chair there, and there's one chair on the other side. That's it. There's no art on the wall. There's nothing. So, and he's writing. He doesn't even look up. He's writing something. And this is like uh, I'm walking to the death chamber. And without looking up, he says, what do you want? And at that moment, I realized he's like all my uncles. Right. He's, they're all tough, tough talking guy, heart of gold. Okay. So I said, I want a two-year deal for Suzanne Summers, and I don't care what the money is. So he puts the pencil down and he said, why do you want a two-year deal? I said, I told him about the Sahara and the Riviera. Right. I said, 
I don't want to come here with two weeks. I said, it's a waste of time. I said, I don't know if she's going to succeed in two weeks. So that's why I want a two-year deal, because everything she does, she succeeds, okay? You ever watch Three's Company? He said, I love Three's Company. He said, okay, did she succeed? He said, yes. I said, so? Two-year deal, what have you got to lose? He said, no one's got a two-year deal. He said, I've got Dolly. He, he named all the right. all the stars. He's got got cause. I got blah blah. He said they have six weeks, a six month, six eight month deals. He said no one's. I've never heard of a two year deal. He gives me a two year deal, and the money was more than I was asking Three's Company for. So now we got to put a show together, and we've never done it. And she's never been on stage other than in high school for Guys and Dolls. And uh, so I I bring in some of the people I had worked with in Canada, and one of them in particular who was a buddy of mine in Toronto, and he became head of comedy at NBC. And he and his partner produced a lot of big variety shows when variety was big in, right. in this country. Saul Ilson. And so I told Saul, I said, we got this deal. I said, uh, you know, I want you to help us out. He said, with pleasure. So he took charge. He became the producer of the original show. And he brought in the choreographer. He cast all the singers. He cast all the dancers. I said, don't even think about what it's going to cost. Whatever it costs, we're fine. I said, just do, just do a great show. So we had projection. We had everything. Because I wanted all this there so that Suzanne's not, you know, naked on stage all by herself. So we open. And her opening theme music is playing. Suzanne and I are standing in the wings. And it's time for her to go on. And she's not going on. So I put my foot on her rear end and gently pushed her out <laughs> on stage, okay? And when she got on stage, when she was out there, she was very comfortable. She loved it. It was a great show. We were sold out. And we, I think we were at the MGM for a week or two weeks. And that was the beginning of Vegas. Uh, she became... Uh, female entertainer of the year one year. We, we, li we lived in Vegas for 10 years. And we worked in uh, Vegas for 35 weeks a year. Uh, she still holds the record for selling the most tickets over a two-and-a-half-year period. For two-and-a-half years, we were at the Las Vegas Hilton. We had a gigantic show there, cast of 60 people. It was the Moulin Rouge. And uh, she wound up starring in the Moulin Rouge. Uh, strangely, I get a call from the president of uh, the Hilton, Henry Lewin, who was a German Jew who had run for his life uh, you know, during the war and spent the war years in, in China. And he called me and said, uh, Alan, I have this show. And I won't do his accent. He said, I have this show, and I'm paying uh, these guys in Paris uh, a lot of money in royalties every single week. He said, we have more people on stage than we have in the audience every night. <laughs> he said, would you and Suzanne come and look at it? So that night we go look at the show. I love big, I love big production shows in Vegas, okay? T any production show. Beautiful girls with feathers and, you know, a lot of music and dancing. I love that. So I said, Henry, Henry Lewin was his name. I said, Henry, it's a, it's a beautiful show. He said, I know, I know. He said, but what's wrong? I said, you don't have an anchor. I said, there are two other shows in Vegas that have French names. I said, nobody knows what the, those, these shows are. It's like, what's the Moulin Rouge? What is it? Okay. I said, here's what I suggest. Suzanne opens the show, 
She does her act in the middle of the show, and she closes the show. Okay? We will do that if you promise to do this. He said, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I said, you have to buy every available billboard in Las Vegas. You have to buy every available billboard in the feeder cities, okay? Uh, Phoenix, Burbank, L.A., etc. I will produce two video commercials and several radio spots. I will give you photo-ready art to use in print. You have to just forget about what it's costing and just lay it on. And if you do that, I promise we will succeed. So that was, can't remember what month it was. Two months later, we opened. 1,800 seats at the Las Vegas Hilton. I was a little worried, okay? Because the night we were there to watch the Moulin Rouge, there were probably maybe 100 people. <laughs> and it's off the strip. Right. Okay, it's off the strip. So we don't even have the, the benefit of people walking by. So I gave him a picture, a headshot of Suzanne, sexy headshot. I said, put this on your, on the, the, uh, the what do they call it? Not marquee. The, yeah, the marquee, okay? We opened, we're sold out. It was the first time the, uh, the balcony uh, had people sitting in it since Elvis was there in the 60s. Okay, they were storing lighting equipment in the balcony. So we sold out two two-hour shows every night, seven nights a week. Those were the days when Vegas hotels provided entertainment every night of the week. After a year and a half or two, and we're still selling out like crazy, I said to Henry Lewin, we got to have a day off. And he said, Alan... Is it money? I said, it's not the money. I said, we're happy with everything, with everything. I said, it's not that at all. I said, she needs a day off just to lay in bed. And he said, oh, okay, okay, Monday. So that started all the hotels only doing shows Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and sometimes Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Okay, it broke the seven-day rule, was an unofficial rule. So we did that for two and a half, two and a half years, and sold gazillions of tickets, and that established her as a uh, headliner in Las Vegas. And we started playing theaters around the country, and that got old after a while. You know, one playing nighters, and you finish doing the show, and you're eating crap on the road. By the way, that's another conversation. Uh, All the people, all the entertainers who have been on the road all their life, okay, 40, 50 years, uh, I don't know if you've noticed or not, but they all have uh, dementia or Alzheimer's. And why? Because they're doing nighters. They get to the venue. They're nervous. So not eating. They do a sound check, rehearsal. They do the show. 11 o'clock at night, they say to the, the, the road manager, go get some food. So what's open? You know what's open at 11 o'clock at night, at right? At Denny's. If you're lucky. Right. So he brings back uh, crap food that's, uh, in, that's sprayed with poison and who knows what else. And that's what these people have been eating for 40 and 50 years. And I believe it's the food. Okay. How does the thigh master happen? I get a call from a guy I casually knew in Toronto. <clears throat> and he says to me, and he's part of a, a film development company. There are three of them. 
He said, I got this uh, exercise device. He said, I don't know what to do with it. He said, I want you to take a look at it. So he comes to, we're living in Palm Springs. He comes to Palm Springs. And uh, it's called a V-toner because it's shaped like a V. Right. And it's an upper body workout. It's not for thighs. It's upper body. And the idea is if you use it for your upper body, your upper body will be shaped like a V as well. So it's called a V-toner. And it was invented by a Swedish doctor. And it's Swedish looking. It's kind of gray. It has a gray utility sort of look to it. And it had been around for 15 or 20 years, and they couldn't sell a unit. So Suzanne takes it, puts it between her thighs and started squeezing it and says to the guy, is this good for thighs? And he says, yeah, but it's an upper body. She said, okay, leave it with us. So during the next two weeks, we came up with the name. Suzanne says it was her. I said it was me. Um, and we changed the color combination. So it had a red knob and blue handles. And uh, we shot the commercial. And the commercial, a little flaccid. The results were a little flaccid. We weren't losing money, but we weren't making the money we thought we were going to make. So we had to figure out, what do we do next? So we added three pages called Suzanne Summers Helpful Hints for Healthy Eating as a premium. And it took off like a rocket. What do you th why do you think that was? People like getting free stuff. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So most people who have a heyday on TV, certainly at that time, want to get back on weekly TV. Yeah. What was your feeling about that? About me getting back or no, Suzanne? Her, her. Well, she had done, most people don't even think, think about this. She's done two hit series, Three's Company. Then she did seven years with Patrick Duffy on Step by Step. Seven years. That's a, that's a hit TV show. She did Candid Camera for two years, I believe. She did a. Uh, she did a, the first. Um, the first time they produced a virgin sitcom for syndication. Usually, it goes to the network, and then the network goes to syndication. So they decided. Lorimar decided, let's produce a sitcom for uh, syndication before it goes to the. It'll never go right. to the network, right? It was called She's the Sheriff, and Suzanne was the sheriff. Of course, yeah, and, I forgot that. She, she did not like doing the show. I said, why, why don't you like doing the show? She said, I don't like what I have to wear. I said, okay, okay. But they're paying you every week, right? She said, yeah, but I don't like, okay. So that show ran for, I think, a year, maybe two years. I can't remember. So she's done a lot of TV, a lot of TV. We did music specials for CBS, uh, a lot of guest starring on music specials with Paul Anka and, you know, uh, John Wayne, etc. So a lot of television. Does she want to go back to TV? Um, I think if she went back to TV, it wouldn't be to do a sitcom. Because it's never going to be as good as right. what she's done. Uh, she would probably go back to do a talk variety show remember those of course okay merv griffin and you know she'd go back for that uh, and she'd probably say well let's do it out of palm springs okay 
so we do it out of Palm Springs. But what we're doing right now is um, she was on the shopping channel HSN for 17 years, one of their top vendors. And we started with jewelry, then we went to fashion, then we went to small kitchen appliances, then we went to organic food, then we went to audio video, then we went to publishing, uh, then we went to candy and chocolate, uh, then we went to bedding. I'm probably missing. Okay, but I, I, your memory is phenomenal. Okay. Um, and she was one of the top vendors, and they referred to her as the queen of TV shopping. Okay. Okay? 17 years. So then she started writing these books. And she wrote, her first book was 73. She wrote a, a book of poetry called Touch Me. And uh, uh, that's a story in itself. Um, she came down to audition for the Dom DeLuise show, and she had a callback. So she went to the commissary at NBC uh, to wait f to be called back. And it was mid-afternoon. She was the only one in there. In walks Johnny Carson. And she thinks, oh, my God, there's Johnny Carson. Oh, my God, Johnny Carson's coming over to me. So he comes over to her and says, hey, little lady, what are you doing here? I'm here for Dom DeLuise. He said, oh, he's a friend of mine. I hope you get it. She didn't have an 8 by 10 She hands him her book of poetry. So he takes it. That was Wednesday. Friday, she's on The Tonight Show. <laughs> Having purchased a dress with a bad check. Okay? Carson loved her because she was a small-town girl totally open i mean he would say to her when did you get to town she'd say this afternoon right okay um so he had her on i don't know every month he loved having her on and um so from that uh fred silverman do you know right, the name? of course yeah so freddie was head of nbc there were no they didn't have committees then to decide if they're going to do a show or not now it's by committee and because no one wants to, you know, give be responsible for a loss. Yeah, but they all take credit for right. a win, right? So uh, Fred had watched Suzanne on the Tonight Show often. They had done two pilots with two other Chrissy Snows that did not test well. So he said to uh, the the producer, producers, "I've got the girl." So they call Suzanne, and Suzanne said, "You know, and I did." A bunch of pilots, none of them sold. I think I'm done. I'm going to teach cooking. Okay? No, he's coming for this one lad. Okay. So she goes in, not caring if she gets the job. Of course. Which, of course, is the best way to get the yeah. job, right? And she gets home, the phone rings, you got it, and we start Monday. 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 Okay? Not with a pilot. We're in production Monday. And the first order was for six shows, which was normal in those days. Okay? She walks in to the uh, room where they're all sitting around. The cast and the producers and the writers are sitting around for a table read. For of course. And she's never been to a table read. She's never, never, really done, done, a show. never done anything. Right. Right? So the first thing she announces to everybody, okay, this is a small town girl speaking. I've never had an acting lesson. And I, I, I'm not quite sure what I'm doing, but I learn fast. All the professionals were sitting around, and I'm sure they were thinking, what? 
this is one of the three right. stars of the show who's never had an acting lesson and doesn't know what she's doing, okay? But that was her, her honesty. I'm just telling you, I'm telling you people who I am, okay? So the first, she doesn't like the first year of Three's Company. She said, I, I didn't hit it, okay? But by the second year, she was hitting it out of the park. She got that, she, I said, it's very hard to be a likable dumb blonde. Right. Because most dumb blondes are irritating. She said, I created a moral box for this character. And in the moral box, I don't lie ever, and I'm never going to steal anyone's husband or boyfriend. That's my moral box, okay? Always tell the truth. Never come on to anybody's guy, okay? And that's why people love that character. Okay, so, but now that you were saying a couple times you're doing Facebook shows? So we have a... We have about a thousand products that we've, all of which we've developed over the years. Uh, we have Suzanne Organics, which is, and by the way, Suzanne Organics came out of, you know, for every downside, there's an upside. Right. The downside was 20 or 21 years ago, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And uh, she couldn't figure out why she would host this terrible disease. And she realized it was because. She was staying up late at night writing. Uh, she was eating. Uh, you know, when you're doing when you're doing a TV show, there's the craft table, craft service. I call it the crap table, you're right? Okay, because there's orange things there. There are no natural foods other than oranges that I know of. Right, that are, they're covered in orange powder, and you're a little nervous. So every time you go by, you grab something and you just throw it in your mouth. And then if they serve, you know, lunch, it's not with uh, gourmet food. It's the cheapest food they could find, right? So she figured a part of it was staying up late, not getting enough sleep, uh, being too busy, and not being aware of the food I was eating. So she decided to change her life, and ultimately my life, and uh, get all the toxins out of our life. Okay, we got rid of all the, the stuff in our house for cleaning, which is poison. We created a home cleaning system that you could drink. It tastes awful, but you could drink it. Okay, and it works incredible. Uh, we created Suzanne Organics. It's uh, organic skincare, organic hair care, organic cosmetics. Okay, because when you see the 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 uh, stuff that you buy commercially for skincare and hair care, you wouldn't want to go anywhere near it. Okay, so on your Facebook Live show, do you promote these products? Absolutely. So what we do is, it's like a reality show. Oh, a few years ago, uh, John Feldheimer, who's a dear friend of ours who runs uh, Lionsgate, he said, I want to do a, a reality show with you and Suzanne. We said, but we don't argue. We don't fight. We're not like, you know, right. all these reality shows, they kick the crap out of each right. other, okay? And that's the show. We don't do that. He said, that's why I want to do it with you guys. I know you so well, and you don't argue, but you have this great loving relationship. That's what I want. So I said, okay. So for three days, we had two guys with big cameras like this following us around. I called John. I said, I can't do this. Okay, I just I said I I, I can't, there are things that I want to do that I can't do because I know it's going to be on camera. I said, and even though you know we we have the final uh, look in terms of it, I said I, I, we can't do this. 
Okay, we can't do it. He said, I understand. So, what we do now with Facebook Live, and we simulcast on IGTV, Instagram, and we're on our way to another nine or ten digital platforms. We've been doing this for about a year and a half. Uh, we've uh, archived about 100 hours, which you can, you can go to Suzanne Summers' Facebook and you'll see them all there. Uh, there's no script. Suzanne and I don't discuss what we're going to do. The only thing that we plan ahead is what products are we going to be selling and uh, how much are we charging, okay? And we discount our products like crazy. How lucrative is it? Well, it depends on your definition of lucrative. I mean, everything's relative, you know, but, okay, how long are the shows? They're like between 40 and so in a 40-minute uh, to an hour show, yeah. what is the range of the lowest amount of gross product you could sell to the top? I don't know how to answer that question. Um, most of the show is Suzanne and I, or if our family's there, our family's on, just goofing around. Uh, I'm the bad boy, okay? I say things that, we know the audience goes, oh, did you hear what Alan said? And it, I'm not making it up. Right. That's who I happen to be. I like being right. the bad boy. Right. Okay? So we have fun doing these shows, and uh, we market not all of our products. Um, like we did a show with uh, Thighmaster uh, a few weeks ago. And, uh, I mean, we keep a good supply of Time masters. Okay, so when you email me, you always email with me with marketing wisdom. So as you look at, and you talked about branding earlier. Yeah. So what are a couple of lessons you can tell my audience in terms of selling their products? Well, first of all, you have to believe in your products. Uh, the first, <clears throat> aside from my experience on the train, I got a job selling food freezer plans uh, in Canada. Uh, that's like selling, you know, ice to the Eskimos, really. Uh, and the sales manager said to me, I don't care if you like the food freezer plan or not, okay? I said, no, no, he said, I don't care if you like it or not. He said, you have to talk yourself into believing that you love it. If you can believe that you love it, you can then get anyone to love it, okay? So I said, okay. So that was my first lesson in marketing to people that may not want to buy anything. Right. So with all the products we have, we developed all of them ourselves. So there are no products there where someone comes to us and says, other than Thighmaster that happened in the 80s, um, we, we created all these products, okay? We, we have a formulator. We do it all ourselves. We have a team of four that uh, op runs our uh, digital programs. Uh, Soon we're going to get into the podcast business. We've been avoiding it for a long time, but it's time, okay? Uh, and we sell our products. Um, we don't spend a lot of time during the hour. During the hour, it's mostly goofing around and uh, every so often. And we try to make it look homemade. There's nothing slick. There are no... So in other words, let's assume I'm watching your Facebook Live show. Yeah. Where do I buy it from? SuzanneSummers.com. So you're driving everybody to SuzanneSummers.com. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
We could go on for hours. Yeah, I know. You're, you know, your incredible rock and tour. You've been listening to Alan Hamill. We could listen all day, telling his stories. I, you know, just about Canada. Never mind Three's company. Thanks so much for being here and informing my guests of what's going on in the belly of the beast. Well, thank you for inviting me. I, this is my first podcast, John. Well, it's not your first time around the block talking, Alan. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thank you. Till next time. This is Bob Left Sense. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.